Welcome to the Zealous Advocate Podcast. Join attorneys James Moore, Kevin Littlejohn, and Misty Blagg as they explore law, technology, and persuasive arguments. Sit back, relax, and listen to your Zealous Advocate. Welcome back to the Zealous Advocate Podcast. I'm Misty Blagg, and I'm here with my co-host today, Kevin Littlejohn, and we have a new co-host in the Mm. studio today, Tom Harvey. Welcome, Tom. It's great to have you here. Thanks, guys, and uh, I guess thanks to James Moore for being out. Let me get in here. Yes, certainly. This is really just an interview to take his Yeah, Yes, certainly. I don't want you to take this lightly. You are here today to replace someone that we no longer want on this podcast. Well, look, I, well, this will be a good test to see if he actually listens, to see if he finds out about this. <laughs> right. right. Well, Kevin, if you could introduce our guest today, that would be wonderful. Perfectly. Good afternoon uh, to everyone. Misty, good to see you back in the studio um, for this episode of the podcast. I'm extremely excited today. Uh, we have another installment of our Zealous Advocate podcast for you all and today we have a very distinguished member of the legal community and the community as a whole here in new hanover county we have none other than the district attorney district attorney ben david good to see you ben how you doing i'm doing great kevin and welcome thank you so much for having me here today guys certainly i will say i was in the gym this morning, and this is as we proceed through here. He always I likes sh- to talk about going to the gym. I was struggling with what is how to how to address you because I always call you Mr. David. Ben, please call me Ben. ben. Yes, I'm. I'm gonna try it. Okay. I want to try it. But so, I just want to go back and point out that like, Kevin manages to slip in each episode how he goes to the gym. So, not true. Not true. <laughs> everybody to acknowledge no. that. Right. Well, it shows. I gotta give him some credit on that. I'm trying, and just for the for the listeners. Um, who may be unfamiliar with a little bit of, of your background and history, you went to the University of Florida for undergrad. I did. Um, and then you ultimately migrated up north to Wake Forest, if I recall correctly. That is right. With you you and your brother? No, John and I grew up in Florida. Mm-hmm. He went to FSU while I was at Florida for undergrad, so that's already complicated. <laughs> then he came to University of Florida for law school when I came up here to Wake Forest. Okay, perfect. So you're just trying to run away from him. That's right. He, he just kept following me. He kept following me. And you started your career a little not in the criminal defense or in the prosecutorial arena. You were doing trade was a trademark litigation that I saw that you were primarily focused in. That's right. Petrie Stockton. It became Kilpatrick Stockton while I was there. Uh, very large law firm in in Winston Salem and really throughout the country. There's over 500 lawyers. Great way to knock out the student loans. In fact, right. I did it in two years. Um, but also just a great group of people. And if they had a beach in Winston-Salem, I'd still be there. But okay. I, I had that. an identical twin brother, still do, who was a prosecutor at the same time that I was in that office. And he said, and he was in Miami, by the way, as a prosecutor there, and I was making three times his salary. And he said, I'm just way cooler. And he, he was right. He said, you're, you're three times as rich, but I'm, I'm way cooler. And I said... You know, you can make money or you can make a difference. And mm-hmm. so I said, I'm going to go do this for a couple of years, and then we're going to take on the world together. And that was 25 years ago. I fell in love with this, and I said, instead of moving back to our home state, why don't you move to this one, and we'll take this on together. And that's exactly what happened. Right. That is fabulous. I can relate because I was in a bigger law firm and then felt the same thing. Like, it just, just wasn't my why. And, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed working in a, a smaller firm for that well, reason. Clearly, I went the wrong way because I left law school and I went and became <laughs> Try a, to tell a, you, Tom. an ADA. And <laughs> look, I loved every second of it. I thought it was the best job in the world. But uh, at a certain point, you got to pay your student loans, like Mr. David just said. And, and so now I'm, I'm, I'm out here in the, the civil world trying <laughs> to cut my wares. Certainly. Well, speaking of the civil world, 
let's dig in just a little bit and talk about case selection. That's that's one of the hardest things to learn, I think, when you're starting out is, you know, when is this case suited for you? And there's a there's several different things that we have to consider when we're we're making those decisions. So, Kevin, if you'll kick us off, like, what's your process for making you know your case selection decisions? I think. It's a difficult process for me as a young attorney because, you know, you get out of law school and you think you're equipped to address and deal with a variety of issues. And early on, it was just a matter of do I think my client is right? And if I think they're right, we're going to file a complaint. Um, (laughs) But I quickly learned from, you know, mentors that that is that is the last step in the process that you need to be considering. And so now there's so many things that I take into consideration, at least from a client perspective, um, one, the ability when we're having our initial consults, one of the things I'm really gauging as we're in those discussions is how receptive is this client really going to be to my advice and my feedback and how much of this case is more so about them being right on principle versus them really being damaged or afflicted with some sort of legal issue because you get those clients with principle, principle, principle. Yeah, never I, take a client that yeah, says they're it, doing it for the principle. It gets really stressful there at the end where it's like hey you can you can be right but you're going to be right at a cost of a hundred thousand dollars when this is a you know ten thousand dollar issue and so i really like to see how well clients will be receptive to my advice and then um from a legal issue perspective just on selecting cases you know there's always that cost benefit analysis on whether or not the cost to you know litigate a case or mediate a case will really be worth um, the client's time and our time, realistically, if we can get it done or something you can do on your own, I think is a lot of times beneficial for a lot of folks because, you know, as James always says, litigation is a long word right. and yes, it's, it's, it's extensive, expensive. an expensive word. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the two main things I like to look at, you know, just initially aside from, you know, legal issues. Right. How about you, How about you Tom? Well, look, I think Kevin covered it a lot when it comes to the civil world and how we, you know, focus on client needs, client expectations, and really valuing the case that way. But what I'm interested in, and I'm going to put Ben David over here on the spot, and how you use your prosecutorial discretion to make some decisions. And and, and Ben, I probably don't know this. I'm, I'm a local boy. I'm one of the few Wilmington people in the room here. So I've followed a lot of your big cases for a long time. And one that strikes me because I knew the victim in the case, and I want to ask you about how you pursued what at the time seemed like a novel idea in the Jeremy Luchin's case where the uh, young girl took some narcotics and her boyfriend watched her pass away. That I believe you charged that under novel legal, th- legal theory and how you made that decision in either that case or other cases that might not fit in the traditional mold when you look at criminal prosecution. Thank you for that question. And, you know, 25 it's called 25I or 2CI was the designer drug that killed Stephanie. Um, and Jeremy was a young man who otherwise was a squared away guy, but he was dealing prescription pills and, and illegal narcotics to friends, was a live-in boyfriend with Stephanie, watched her die, literally filmed her, and was sending Snapchat videos to Ooh. friends to say, what should I do? And they were all saying, call 911. And he didn't. And his failure to call 911... Uh, resulted in her passing away. At the time, we didn't have a law that said you can get immunity for calling 911 like we have now, and that was a case that moved that needle. But one thing we said is, listen, while the normal citizen doesn't have a duty to act, 
Um, in other words, you can watch a baby drown in a pool and it's morally reprehensible, but you don't have to jump in. Right. You do under three circumstances. You do if you're the lifeguard. Mm -hmm. In other words, if your job compels that, like an officer has to run up the stairs when everyone else is running down. We saw that in 9-11. You have to jump in if you're the parent, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because that's implied by obviously your you're, you're the you're the person who is protecting that Guardian child. Yeah. Live-in boyfriends don't count. Only in Oregon. I checked that. <laughs> okay. Okay. But, but, the, but the third legal theory is: what if you push them in the pool? In other words, what if you created oh, the harm yeah. that you have to do? And so our legal theory there was: he pushed her in the pool. He's the one that provided the drugs. He needs to go and now save her. So that's why we prosecuted that case. But it it brings up a larger point. In civil law, clients come to you. And and want you either decide selectively to take a case or not. In the criminal justice field, particularly as a prosecutor, the cases um, pick you because they happen in your jurisdiction, and then you have to decide what to prioritize. My my priority as district attorney has always been violent criminals and career criminals committing any crime. We have seventy five thousand cases a year. Okay. Vast majority simple traffic matters. I like to go into traffic court. I'll be in Burga on Wednesday. There's 1,200 cases set in one. Oh, round. watch out! 1,200. <laughs> okay. I40. I40. But but as for the worst cases, the ones I like to try, um, you know, I like to send a message. So I like to go after the ones that I think have something to say. Like like right. you just mentioned, um, I love a serial killer case. I like the hard one that you shouldn't win. You know, if it's trial by Samsung, if it's on TV mm -hmm. and anyone can press play and it's a confession, why do I need to do that? So, like my first case as district attorney, homeless man was stomped to death in an alleyway. What was I trying to say as a young 34 elected DA? That no one's above the law, but no one's beneath its protection. Right. Absolutely. So, what we try to do with a discretionary docket of 5,000 felonies and 20,000 misdemeanors on top of those traffic offenses show up at unexpected times and places as the DA to try the little stuff. But when it comes to the big stuff, what's the message? That's an excellent point. Um, as a healthcare attorney, one of the things I have to think about is do I have the skills um, that can help my client, prospective client in this particular area because healthcare is just so big and broad. Um, and there's there's hundreds of subspecialties within healthcare. So that's a just a initial thing that I think about. Do I have the skills or skills that I can pull from? Um, because we have an ethical duty to, if we don't have those skills, to associate with counsel or to get ourselves ready. So we have to take that very serious. Um, now, just talk to us a little bit for our viewer that, viewer that doesn't understand prosecutorial discretion. Kind of explain what exactly that term means. Sure. Well, the law is written by the legislature or Congress at the federal level. It's interpreted by judges. The executive branch, and actually prosecutors like police are in the executive branch, are the ones that are supposed to go out and enforce the laws. So the ultimate power you actually have as district attorney is first to advise law enforcement. Article 4, Section 18 says I'm their legal advisor. And if I see a case that either is not supported by probable cause or there was some violation of, for instance, someone's constitutional rights like the Fourth Amendment search and seizure or Fifth and Sixth Amendment Miranda warnings, then I might even dismiss that case. Um, the prosecutorial discretion really comes in this way. If something is illegal or wrong, I will say that up front and it never reaches a courtroom. If they are valid cases, and the vast majority of them are, 
The next question is, well, what's our priority? Because only about one out of 50 felonies will ever get in front of a jury. Mm -hmm. 2% of all cases in America are actually trials. Everything else are pleas. So what is it that you want to send the messages with? What are um, the things you're trying to say through putting this in front of your community? Um, and so prosecutorial discretion is really, first, making sure you're not tolerating, for instance, something like profiling, or that you're saying to the, the police on the street, hey, we're going to back you up on the worst stuff, and if something happens to you, I'm your lawyer, in terms of you know, speaking for them in a murder trial, which I've had to do before, where they're the victim. I'm also going to be the one holding them accountable if they have run afoul of the law, and, and I've done that too. But as it relates to um, the prosecutorial discretion, it's really where are we going to put our time? Because time is your limited resource in public service. What are you going to focus on? And again, for us in the DA's office, it's violent criminals and career criminals committing any crime, uh, the things we generally put most of our emphasis on. Does do you have any kind of focus area that is is sort of pushed down to you from a higher you know person for like the governor or yeah no in fact the constitution says <coughs> that I work for the voters and no one else right. so okay. the attorney general's not my boss the governor's not my boss I I look in the mirror I don't look over my shoulder when I'm trying to do the right thing I became a DA and a dad in the same week for the first time oh. and so I've always kind of put it through the lens of what would my kids say about if their dad's doing the ethical and right thing? That's been my guide for the 18 plus years I've been the elected DA. Um, and you know, I really try my best to remind myself that everyone who's watching right now, everyone I drove past when I was driving to the studio today, they're my boss. And am I doing everything I can by them to make sure that we're fair, that we're efficient, and that we're promoting public safety in the best way possible. So, Ben, I want to follow up on both of those kind of points right there and ask how you balance your, you know, you mentioned you're an elected official who, who yeah. doesn't answer to anybody but the, the people. So you've got your priorities that you've made, you know, for the community that you think are the best priorities for the community. You've got your personal prosecutorial discretion and what cases that you personally want to try or think need to be brought forward, but also for your office. So how do you set policies and guidelines in your office so that line prosecutors can still exercise their prosecutorial discretion while staying within the bounds of what you feel should be the priorities for both your office and the community? That's a great question. You know, first of all, what I try to do is have very few policies and a lot more hiring good people and say, I trust yeah. you, use this discretion. Every case is going to be different. There's the same constitution each time, same burden of proof. But you start with good people. And the way that we really focus on that, um, I, have a, I have a system. First of all, I teach a class at UNCW. Um, every semester we have 100 kids in it. Those 100 students get narrowed down to a field of 10 for a 150-hour internship the following semester. And then I'll hire the top one or two out of that. So we've had a dress rehearsal of a whole year together before right. you're a member of my support staff. Last 10 people I've hired on the non-attorney level have all come through that. As it relates to um, the ADAs, um, we have great internships through the summertime where they're certified for the practice of law and can basically sit next to us as a licensed attorney and help try some of these cases. So we get a really good dress rehearsal there. But as it relates to how do we infuse kind of this philosophy, we have very senior attorneys. There's 25 ADAs in my office. There's over 200 years worth of prosecutors there in this region. And what we do is this. When we have to make a really big decision, we'll have what we call a CCR, or critical case review, 
where we will get into a room like this, there will be a, a prosecutor and lead detective with a, a clicker in their hand, and for one hour, no one's allowed to talk except them. They're presenting the case. What's the evidence? What are the likely defenses? What's the to-do list that we still need to chase down, either from interviewing witnesses or collecting the physical evidence and testing it? What's the trial strategy? Should there be a plea? Um, basically, what we're doing is we are the focus group for the people who are kind of living in this case, and then we are checking their blind spots or potential hidden biases. We're looking at it, it from a proportionality standpoint, is it fair to all concerned based on what we've done as our own internal precedent, kind of looking at how these cases have flowed through the last years and, and have institutional memory. And so that's what we do on some of the hot potato cases we have. You know, again, we can't do a CCR with everything, but we're going to do that with all homicides, and we're going to do that with a lot of the sexual assaults and, and, and the ones that we know we're going to be getting a lot of scrutiny on. That's fabulous because I tell you, one of the pressures you face in a bigger law firm is you're on the clock. And so it's really valuable but difficult to get four attorneys in the same room that where you're going to be billing the client and have those sorts of discussions. But I just can't. You know, that's, that's just invaluable to be able to bounce ideas off of other people. And what we do, even before you're the shot caller necessarily with the clicker or giving the best advice, those newer attorneys in our office, they're, they're in there. We have non-attorneys in there as that focus group, too. And they are taking in some of the biggest cases in our community and, and kind of being like our jury and saying, mm -hmm. is this going to play? And so it really is a way of, of, in real time, bringing them into the conversation of, Here's what we do for a living and why. And we, we learn from each other in that process. Well, yeah, and they can model decision-making, and there's just so much to be learned there by, by using that particular type of model. i tell you one thing that, that hit me when I got out of law school and started doing case selection is I should have paid a lot more attention and professional responsibility in <laughs> conflict of interest issues because Absolutely. those can be – a lot stickier than I think when we're a law student we, we consider. Have you ever had an issue when you're trying to um, resolve a conflict of interest uh, situation, Kevin? Um, have I had a conflict of interest issue? I, I, I thought I may have at one point in time there was a client that uh, approached our firm, firm on a catastrophic death case that uh, I had, my family had um, significant, you know, attachment to we had seen each other throughout the years um and that was sort of the only from a client representation standpoint where i just wanted to be sure i didn't think that there would be any issue with it but you know you just always want to want to double check those things i actually the the case to which i've probably done the most research on ethical issues was actually a case i was in with mr david formidable adversary <laughs> formidable adversary. i would definitely hire kevin if you're watching <laughs> i was in i was in, involved in this murder case and it was me and this other great attorney named lucky naran and mr david christy severo and some other folks in his office and I was, I mean, Missy, it was, it was every, every week. I'm just sitting there at my desk with my stomach. You're and like, I'm not like, like I don't know what is going on. So I'm, I'm calling the bomb. Like, what do I need to do with, with respect to representations? We're talking about, please, I need this in writing. I'm, I'm like, I need everything going now. And, you know, you would go visit uh, with Mr. David and Chrissy. And they're just cool, calm, collected. And, and I'm, my head's on fire. I got, I got my top four to the left time. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, help me. Well, and, you know, we. 
you don't always try a slam dunk, but I have to say, this one right here was not a whodunit, it's a what do you call it. He was fleeing at a high rate of speed, going over 90 miles an hour after outrunning an armed robbery. So it's a felony murder because he hit a totally innocent person and killed him at 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning in a nice neighborhood. And so it's one of those horrific cases chased by the police, by the way. So then you've got that whole issue also, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it was, you did right by your client by pleading that case. We w- it, getting back to the call on discretion, if this was just about, hey, would this be fun? And, and you know, can, in our own vanity, can we try this thing for two weeks and have a show? We could have done that. Um, it was the right thing by the people who I represent, and it was the right thing by Kevin's client that we actually resolved that with I'm going to prison for about 30 years. He would have got life without parole, I believe, if we had tried it. It wasn't right to do by either side to have had that trial. Mm, That's tough. Ben, you just said something interesting, and and I want to follow up on that because I think it's an important point. You just mentioned the people that you represent. Can you talk to us about how you think about who you represent, whether that's the victims, the community, the law enforcement community, or some combination of that? Great question. So, first of all, you know, the DA is no ordinary party to a controversy. Our job is to do justice. It's not to convict at all costs, and that's why we sometimes have to even dismiss cases. Emphatically, I'm not the police attorney. I'm the district attorney. I love them. I support them. I think they're heroes and do the right thing 99.9% of the time. What about when you have to prosecute one? Right. Right. And so the answer is I represent the 300,000 people who live here who vote for me. Mm -hmm. But actually, it's bigger than that. I I have to represent the interests of victims that that defendant's never met yet. So even if they say, you know what, I'm leaving town. I was just a tourist here. My wife forgives me. What about the kid that was watching it all? You know, you have to look at public safety bigger than just an individual client. The victims, I, I ran on the tagline giving victims a voice, and I really believe in involving them in the process. I don't give them control. Ultimately, we are the ones who have to make the hard calls, and you're not always going to make everyone happy. A lot of times, victims, particularly in inter-family dynamics, will not want to do something that you really have to do by a case. And so your client ultimately is the truth. Verdict means to speak it. And you're, you're in, in a justice system where you have to think not just about what's in front of you, but the potential harm, particularly if you're talking about incarceration, General deterrence is sending a message. Specific deterrence is about removing them from it. And then rehabilitation. Can we do something to actually help this person to break that revolving door of recidivism? So, you know, like on a traffic ticket, my client might be right in front of me charged with something, and I'm pretending that they're a four-person on the jury five years from now that's in the most important case of my career. Am I treating them with dignity and respect? Mm -hmm. I'm representing the interests of the state and holding them accountable, sending them to driving school, but they're a good person who, like me, has made mistakes, and so it gets complicated. It's It's pretty easy to say, all right, she was just raped. I'm fighting for her. What about a drug deal? You know, who's your? it's the surrounding neighborhood who's dealing with that violence every day. That's a good point. I'm glad you brought up the principles of punishment because that's one of the things in law school. You know, as I went to law school as an older um, second career person. Not older. Seasoned. <laughs> just seasoned. Just seasoned. experienced. But, you know, so I. got a certain very white to it. smooth delivery. <laughs> got the whole thing going on. <laughs> So, you know, I had a lot of, I have formed a lot of my opinions and my belief system before I got to law school, which might be different than, you know, a lot of younger people. But I think 
that was one of the most impactful things that I was taught is what what are we doing with punishment here? Like, what's our goal? And, you know, in each particular situation, we need to be, to be evaluating that. Um, so, you know, that really hit me. You know, there, there's a whole discussion right now about, you know, retribution, which is the eye for the eye model, mm-hmm. and then restoration, which is about, you know, even getting the defendant to try to make amends with the victims in some cases. And, you know, where do we land on all of that? And, you know, for the most part, I think it depends on the type of case. For instance, someone who's killed their best friend in an impaired driving wreck, and I've handled those cases, I always get the same dynamic going on. The, the family of the dead kid says that could have been in, in the reverse seats, and I, 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 my heart breaks for that family too. And so right. that's a, that's an example of where there's going to be punishment. There has to be, uh, but there's also probably going to be a, a hugging it out moment where you're not going to have that in in a typical homicide case. And so these things are these these concepts are there but in terms of when you step on the gas or step on the brake on which we're talking about really depends on the facts of a particular case Absolutely. you know it's something that stood out to me and this is kind of in line of what we're discussing but i was just looking at so you've been the the prosecutor chief prosecutor here for 18 plus years you've run unopposed consecutively for maybe four times five, like five times yeah. And, you know, I'm just going to call it like it is, you know, a lot of times, especially in, in a few communities, the, you know, the, the DA, the prosecutor is not someone that's liked by certain members of the community. Right. Um, that's like me, too. Yeah. And I mean, but and you've also been that leading prosecutor through some very difficult times. I mean, you've had, you know, January 6th, you've had George Floyd, you've had the racial tensions in the country, right. but you seem to have maintained you know the respect of the community the respect of the legal community through all of those things and so i I, yeah certainly and so i was just wondering how was it and how is it sort of being you know almost that middleman between the pulse of the community and the commands of the law as we're going through these various issues in american culture it can be a very tough thing to thread that needle Mm -hmm. i'll tell you this it's more important to do what's right than what's popular right now i've learned that it's also really important to understand that even though you're an elected official, you shouldn't be a politician. In fact, I've advocated for the DA's role, the sheriff, judges, to remove the partisan labels. I don't think they're good for America. They're certainly not good for the administration of justice. No kid was ever asked by a child molester, what party do you belong to before they were molested? Same thing with a drug trafficker. My identical twin brother is an elected Republican. I'm an elected Democrat. So what? See, Kevin, Republicans are good, too. So so what, right? (laughs) And so, you know, I I kid my brother. It's like, I've put three men on death row, and you've put one. What does that mean? Does that mean you're harder on crime? And you know what? We agree on literally every philosophical issue we could talk about. Drug users need treatment. Drug traffickers need prison. Right. Right. Um, there's an Eighth Amendment that prevents us from doing everything we'd want to do to someone who's harmed and raped a child. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we uphold laws even if we don't always like the laws because that's our job. We believe in second chances and rehabilitation for mental illness and for drug addiction and especially for our kids. And so, you know, why is it that so many people right now are, are kind of camping out on you're either a Republican, Democrat, or independent? What I've tried to do, and it, I haven't always succeeded, but what, what I've tried to do <clears throat> is transcend those labels and say, I'm just trying to do what's right. And if you don't agree with me, you get to say that this is America. And guess what? I am not a perfect person, so I get it wrong yeah. every now and then. So thank you for forgiving me when I have. But 
I hire people who are trying to do the right thing every day, and I'm trying to do that. And, and I think that's important, too, to, to focus in on that prosecutors, I think, spend a lot of their time just trying to enforce the law and disregard politics. I've worked for an elected who we were different parties, and she and I got along fantastically. Who I did get, you work for? I'm just curious. Uh, Miss Susan Doyle. Oh, yeah, Johnston County. Great yeah, prosecutor. Yeah, great great county, and I can't say enough things about that office, but I can't think of a single decision that I saw Miss Doyle make in the time that I was there that I thought politics even entered into, or had I not known that she was running for election as a Republican, that I would have even thought about it. I think that's, I think that's really important, and I, my feeling is in most offices across the state, you would find that politics don't enter into those decisions. And, and I certainly know, Ben, I, from living in this community, they don't ever seem to factor into your decisions. Thank you. Well, that's, that's the goal anyway. And um, it's, it's getting increasingly harder to get 12 people to agree on anything right. in America. And that's what a unanimous verdict looks like. And so if you're perceived as having an agenda or doing something for Sniff political purposes rather than because it's the law and you're just trying to uphold that rule of law, mm -hmm. I don't think you could be effective as a prosecutor. I think that's right. Well, let's switch a little bit and let's talk about big cases on our radar. Um, I'll start uh, just yesterday. Uh, they, the DOJ announced a huge health care fraud takedown. Um, mm. There were seven, 78 defendant, criminal defendants, uh, $2.5 billion in alleged fraud. So this was a very big takedown. A large part of that was telemedicine fraud. So mm. I think, you know, we can see the DOJ again having, you know, coming back to these big fraud takedowns and telemedicine, which they really like to call telefraud at this point, um, being a significant portion of that. So I think healthcare providers need to really have that on their um, compliance sort of agenda uh, to be looking for, you know, potential areas that telemedicine could, um, you know, cause a problem for them. How about you, Tom? Well, I, look, I think most of the country's got their eyes on a, a case in the Southern District of Florida, maybe one in um, brought by the Manhattan DA's office and one potentially <laughs> down there in Fulton County, Georgia. But, <laughs> but, but I'll put those aside. Um, yesterday, again, the uh, United States Supreme Court released an opinion in Moore v. Harper talking about the independent state legislature theory. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of people read that to see that the independent state legislature theory was maybe tamped down or put put to bed on that. And for people who don't know, that's the idea that the state legislatures can act without review of their state Supreme Court when dealing with federal elections. But buried in that case, there's some interesting language that gives the United States Supreme Court the authority to review decisions of a state Supreme Court based on state law and state constitutions, an authority that the Supreme Court typically doesn't have. So I'd be interested to see how that imp opinion impacts Supreme Court jurisprudence going forward and what kind of role the federal Supreme Court plays in state decisions going forward after that. That's, that's an excellent point. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, what, what you got on your radar? Um, well, today was a, an interesting day in, in legal jurisprudence for cases that we have oftentimes been taught in law school and I think have impacted millions um, around the country. And the Supreme Court today uh, rendered its opinion relating to the uh, affirmative action program and how it affected. And the case was really about Harvard and UNC, actually. Um, and the, you know, requirements, considerations of race that play into the selection process. Uh, and I think Tom said it earlier, unshockingly, <laughs> um, the Supreme Court made the decision that 
affirmative action was, in fact, unconstitutional and violated the equal protection clause um, of our Constitution. Um, and obviously, as a man of color, attorney of color, I, I certainly find myself a bit frustrated with that conclusion. Though I understand the legal arguments that get made. They've been made for years when these cases be, become presented. But I was reading um, Justice Jackson's um, dissent, and I thought that she summed it up very well. So I wanted to read this to you guys, and I hardly ever read yeah, this stuff to you. Absolutely. Um, she said, our country has never been colorblind. The best that can be said of the majority's perspective is that it proceeds ostrich-like from the hope that preventing consideration of race will end racism. But if that is its motivation, the majority proceeds in vain. That's good. And, and I thought that was a very, a a very moving line yeah. for her because I think it's true. I think the you know, insidious nature of racism is one that's not oftentimes you know, just overt. It's a covert thing. And, and, and certainly I think... Affirmative action was one of those areas that we used to help combat that in an effective way, especially to young children um, who maybe didn't have the ability to exercise their intellectual gifts due to certain, you know, environmental, you know, parent, whatever. Well, reasons. can I just speak to that real quick? Because, mm -hmm. you know, my clients are typically folks who are poor and impoverished in terms of the ones who are under the blanket at crime scenes. In fact, mm -hmm. in, the, in the 25 years I've been a murder prosecutor, 82% of our murder victims here in Wilmington, victims, have been people of color and below the poverty line. And you're talking about an overall population of about 18%. So that's the disproportionate minority contact a lot of people talk about in the justice system. And so when the protesters, for instance, were saying Black Lives Matter, I said, yeah, I agree. That's, that's who I'm fighting for. When we talk about, you know, applying the law fairly, obviously you're supposed to take out considerations of race, religion, national origin. That's the Equal Protection mm -hmm. Clause. Right. But I was really excited to see Judge Jay Corpening on, on your show recently right. because what he and I are both working on is to say, listen, if what you focus on is not color or socioeconomic status and you understand that high crime areas are also high victim areas, mm -hmm. what you can actually be focusing on and move the needle to make a community safer and healthier at the same time is to focus on childhood trauma. Childhood trauma that's under the roof of a home called ACEs or adverse childhood experiences, but also in whole neighborhoods, adverse community environments. And in focusing on those parabases, what you actually see is that if we make kids more resilient today, we prevent the crime and the victimization tomorrow. The, the opioid epidemic, the gateway drug is childhood abuse. Mm -hmm. The domestic violence, the gang violence, you reel back the clock and that's child abuse. And so if we really are intentional about loving on our kids right now and giving them quality education, giving their parents jobs, expunging those records where we can, not because we're forgiving that crime, but because we're a world of second chances. Yeah. When we actually do those things, we, we, uh, we, we we key in on something that prosecutors don't talk a lot about. Life and liberty, yes, but there's also the pursuit of happiness. Right. And I think this debate right here is really about the pursuit of happiness. Do, do we all really have a level playing field? Are we all really about making sure that the game is not rigged, that the deck is not stacked, that everyone's got equal opportunities? And that's a very difficult conversation. And there's, there, you know, we've been having it for years, and this is not going to end today. But... I acknowledge that political questions become constitutional questions, yeah. and yes. and that's that's what the Supreme Court increasingly is is stepping into the middle of is a lot of times the culture wars. Yeah, absolutely, great points. Certainly. Now, I will say because and we did this with with someone else, 
you've got such an extensive career and background in oh. trying cases. And we asked that we asked a criminal defense lawyer out of Florida, Mr. Andrew Fieldman, to give us sort of the case that sticks out in his mind as one of the more fascinating or impactful cases that they can that he could recall if she tried in his career. So right. Misty wants to ask you to, to, to tell us that case as well. <laughs> Is that right? Is that right? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So I handled a case seven or eight years ago where a woman went missing. We couldn't find her anywhere. <sighs> when we finally found her, um, this was a month later, she had been disposed of in two trash bags wrapped up in, the, in a shallow grave. The guy who we knew had done it had done the same thing with a seven-year-old child 30 years earlier and just been released from prison. And so they called me mm. from the crime scene, which happened to be in Pender County, where I'm the DA also, and they said, we found her body, we're gonna arrest him, great. Next morning at the autopsy, they called me and they say, it's not her. I'm like, what do you mean it's not her? They said, we have another victim. Oh, so gosh. we had a real conundrum. We had a murder case without a body and a body without a murder charge mm. and go. And so what we did, we were able to not only keep him in custody, but ended up convicting James Bradley of, of the murder of Shannon Rippey, who we still to this day, years later, have never found. Mm. So the most fascinating case from a standpoint of legal riddle, no murder weapon, no confession, no eyewitness, no physical evidence, and no body. How do you convict someone yeah. of that? Oh. And the answer is, the answer turns out to be other crimes evidence. Um, the, the, what we call in law school 404B evidence, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. it basically is this idea that if you can have a pattern um, to show you know, modus operandi, planning premeditation, then we triangulated with the known two different victims that he had killed to the unknown of, mm -hmm. I called it the Bermuda Triangle of Death. We, we triangulated to a guy using information about him that took us to a place where women went missing. Um, and that, that was, that was mm. probably the most interesting case I've put in a courtroom. I'm just curious, are you guys starting to move forward and use artificial intelligence, Annie, to work on cold cases and track those down? You know, a lot of people have asked me about that lately, and I can see why. Because obviously, you know, we're playing against computers now, and they're right. beating us in jeopardy, right? <laughs> um, I, here's what I tell people. The answer is no. I haven't yet done that. I think that's coming to some degree. But I think it'll be a, a nurse's helper. I don't ever think it's going to be the nurse. And, and here's why. You know, our Constitution contemplates the right to confrontation. It contemplates a jury of your peers. It contemplates all the things that are contained in that Bill of Rights, those first 10 amendments. And that's about human interaction. So of all the professions that I think are in danger of being replaced by computers, I actually think that where we live, this legal profession, and specifically the ones that are in, in the courtroom, I think we're gonna, we're gonna still have job security. Now, when I talk to, like you were just talking about fraud in the healthcare system, mm -hmm. I'm talking to a lot of auditors and, and accountants right now about white collar fraud. And to me, that is one of the most underreported, undercharged yes. crimes in the country. You can steal more money with a pen and a checkbook or a mouse click than you can with a gun and a ski mask. And it's not punished as harshly. And a lot mm -hmm. of times it's swept under the rug and people keep going. What I tell people is the way we stop that is you need to come forward and report it and see it through. And if you're really good at thinking like a prosecutor and understanding the things we need to collect at an early stage, 
you're going to have job security because it will always require expert witnesses to walk into that courtroom and explain it to a collective eighth grade education, which has happened here. And so if, if I were to advise people on what careers are going to be not weatherproof from AI, because we're all going to be affected, but what, where are you still going to be necessary as a human being? It's in a courtroom. Yeah. Absolutely. But I think we're starting to see, and you tell me if I'm wrong, um, you know, a lot of advocates not being able to develop courtroom skills because when you look on the civil side, so many actions are not going to trial. So how do we develop those skills in, you know, some sort of legal education if they're not going to the courtroom very often? What we're doing at the DA's office this week is we're having court camp, literally a DA's leadership academy for rising 11th and 12th graders in high school. We have 28 kids. They're not only learning about closing arguments and opening statements and cross-examination, but they're putting those skills to use in a trial competition in front of their parents on day Mm -hmm. five. They're meeting all of us along the way. We do the same thing with crime and community in the Cape Fear at UNCW. That's how I'm trying to do my part to say we're kind of the residency program for a lot of the legal profession. We are the largest law firm in in our area. We feel a responsibility to train the next generation. We, we, there's many ways you can do that. There's so many cases that we need help with. They're not just there to be observers. They're, they're rolling up their sleeves and doing it in real time with us. But to me, there's a real responsibility for the prosecutors who are frequently the biggest law firms in their rural communities too, right. mm-hmm. to say, you know, we, we don't have time for on-the-job training with some of these serious things. Let's start in the even in the high schools now, let alone the colleges and the law schools on legal education, but give them real-world application and show that what they do matters, and you're fighting for the poor and the oppressed. You're the ones who are actually the real public defenders. If you're learning that mm. at an early stage, I think there's going to be a lot of people choosing this profession and doing it really well once they get there. So just I want to jump in on that, Ben, and, and talk a little bit about – you just talked a lot about technology. One thing that we saw when I was in Johnson County, and I think prosecutors talk about it nationwide, is the so-called CSI effect, where every jury expects you to have the latest and greatest technology and the latest and greatest scientific evidence. How do you educate juries about some of the fact and fiction, what to expect in a – real-world trial as opposed to what you might see on NBC. Right. Well, it's true that, you know, jurors don't want you to just tell them. They want you to show them now. And they think everything's on video. And increasingly, they're right in terms of everyone's got cell phone cameras. So it's a GPS system. You know where they were. Just look at the Murdoch trial, right? You would have never solved that years ago. (laughs) A lot of cameras up on the streets now. So you can kind of do timelines and track people's movements. It used to be he said, she said, now it's they texted each other. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things that they're absolutely right on that the CSI effect has really made it, I don't want to say easier, but more certain on what happened usually with, with cases. But what I remind people of is, listen, what the jury instruction is, is that I can either prove this case through direct evidence, eyewitnesses testifying, or circumstantial evidence, that is the introduction of physical evidence, or a combination of both. And sometimes, like in a murder case, you don't have the luxury of talking to the person. They're dead, and the other one that was there has the right to remain silent, and no one else witnessed it. So it's going to be a circumstantial case. And if you can't agree with me that that's every bit as strong as direct evidence, this isn't your case. Because sometimes that's all you have is circumstance. And then on the flip side, 
you know, a guy who gropes a woman and there's no DNA, there's no fingerprints, it's delayed disclosure, it is going to be as she said, he said. So I can rely exclusively on her testimony right. and direct evidence. And so if you don't understand in following the law, and that's all we ask jurors to do and apply it, that we can rely on either this or that or a combination of both, I'm trying to deselect you from that process because that's absolutely critical that people still walk in with the expectation that, hey, if we've got some evidence, believe me, we're going to fight to get it in front of you. But don't come in here thinking that there has to be a certain, oh, the Bible says two witnesses. That's not what the state of North Carolina says. <laughs> and so you see what I mean? Yeah, no, a lot absolutely. of times people are, are, you know, they apply their own common sense life experience. Uh -huh. they, they apply politics, religion, morality to something, and it's like, you need to apply the law. Mm -hmm. And and so the law is sometimes not as you think it is or might like it to be. It, it's it's what is in those jury instructions. And so when I'm preparing a case, I, I start with the end in mind, just like the seven habits of highly effective people you're supposed to do. I, I look at what Good are the book. elements of the crime? What, what are the things that that jury is actually going to be asked to consider? And then where do I feed it into each element while we're baking the guilty cake? Mm. No, that supports what we've we've had several yeah. guests that that said the exact same thing. So I'm, I just I'm, had a quick one too, Miss. I know you want to get to this presidential debate. I mean, presidential question. But we we <laughs> talked about this with someone else, and I'm interested to know your thoughts on this or how you do this with respect to the burden of proof yep. and it being beyond a reasonable doubt. And with I'm assuming defense attorneys making it seem like something that only God could could ever do <laughs> in front of the jury. How do you reasonable doubts, not no doubt. Yeah, how do you, how do it's you, not a fancy yeah. <laughs> how do you approach that discussion with the jury and, and getting them to a place where they can say, Hey, it ain't as bad as, as the defense attorney. Uh, made. Yeah. Here's, here's, I give them a hypothetical just real quick. And I know mm -hmm. we're probably running close on time. I say, if I was trying to prove it's raining outside right now and we're in a windowless room like we are, how would I do that? I could call in someone who's sitting at a window. They're an eyewitness and they could get under oath and tell you the truth. And I could base it just on that. Mm -hmm. Or, and that's direct and, and, and uh, testimonial, or I could bring in someone who's shaken off a raincoat and, and maybe an umbrella, and that's physical evidence, that's circumstantial. Mm -hmm. Or I could call in a weatherman to talk about patterns, that's the 404B. Mm -hmm. Now, if that person who's dripping wet you know, came in here, is it possible that they weren't just coming from outside where it's raining, but that someone dumped a water bucket on them right before they came in? Yeah, that's possible. Would you agree with me that that's not reasonable? That's, that's something that's now going into conspiracy theories. That's something that's going into something that, while it's theoretically out there, it's not based on reason and common sense. That's the difference between reasonable doubt and a vain or fanciful doubt based on speculation and conjecture. Oh, okay. And so if I get that person who, when I'm talking to them, say, I, I think it could be a fire hose in the hallway, <laughs> get off my jersey. I'm, I'm totally stealing I'm that, that. person, just, too. <laughs> I'm like, I could be in a little fire hose. <laughs> I am stealing yeah, that. Yeah, I'm going to start saying some stuff it. like Go that. For it. Okay, it's presidential trivia time. Cue our music, Tom. Well, here I am yet again. The precipice of victory. <laughs> Tom, the just, money, just, the, just, the money line is on me. Just, just wait, just wait. Two, two or three. It's fine. <laughs> okay, here we go. So, if you know the answer, you gotta raise your hand. Okay, we're I think just, we should all get a chance. We're, we're to not contribute. just shouting it out. Oh, you just, won't all get a I'm, chance. Well, at least me and Tom. At least Mr. Dave, would you like to? Would you like to take a shot at I'm these? I'm ready. All okay. right. Oh, Jesus. All right. Let me pull my cereal. Here we go. <laughs> Guess which president placed a sign on his Oval Office desk reading, "It can be done." Who's starting off? Place the sign on his. Oh, Barack Obama. <laughs> you said that was going to be. That's your my first one. I got wow. to. 
Yes, we can. It can be done. I, I can deduce that. Okay. Or it maybe some great initiative. I, I, that's what I was thinking. If you're going for Rock I'm going to go with that one. Oh. Man, I can't beat the... That book is old. That book was probably a full Rock of Obama. <laughs> 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 I did, I did Obama. find it in my closet Lord. when I was preparing to move. Who? Truman? <laughs> I'm going to say LBJ then. Oh, you guys ready? You ready for this? It's going to hit you hard. Yeah. It's going to okay. hit Ronald Reagan. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Ronald Reagan? You would pick Ronald hey, Reagan as the first... Barack and, and Reagan. Yeah. All the time. Lord, I should have known it was going to be Reagan. Oh, okay. You ready? Here's the next one. What was the name of the horse ridden most often by George Washington during the Revolutionary War? I didn't say it was going to be easy. I was not going to lie. I was about to say Apollonia. <laughs> but what's the one? One of them had white. It was white, old whitey. Which, who, who, I know it's a George Washington. Yeah, right. It was, no, I lie to you not. There was a president that had a horse named Old Whitey. Uh, you can't, can't Google you it. Can't I'm not talking about the Old Whitey. That was the horse. But that's <laughs> all right. not. All right, Misty. It seems okay. like we're stumped here. Okay. Nelson. I know. I told you it was going to be hard. Nelson. These are terrible. Okay. We're going to finish strong here. You guys are going to know this one. I feel sure. Which signatories to the Declaration of Independence later became presidents of the United States? Oh, Jefferson. No. Nope. No. No. Yeah. That, that was, he did the Declaration yeah, of Independence. Yeah, he, he was in Paris. Uh, let's see. Adams. Well, this is the Declaration of yeah. Independence. Oh, okay. Yeah. Je- Madison. I thought you the Constitution. Which yeah. signatories to the Declaration of Independence yeah, so later became president? Jefferson Madison. was correct. Yeah. Madison was one. James yeah. Madison. Okay. Adams. Adams, I like Adams. It. Oh, you guys got it. All three of them. And Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. yeah. Look. Old Whitey, Zach Taylor's horse. <laughs> it was Zach Taylor. Oh, there you go. Well, I got one for you now. Oh, my God. This is Wilmington presidential trivia. Okay. Okay. Which U.S. president's father was a local pastor here in Wilmington? Oh, Wilson. Kevin knows this. Wilson. One. Correct. Oh. Joseph Wilson. <laughs> Joseph Wilson, Woodrow's dad, mm-hmm. was the uh-huh. was the pastor at First Presbyterian Church. I got to give Tom credit for that. I heard him yell that behind me. <laughs> Tom back here, Wilson, Wilson. <laughs> Well, Ben, it's been so wonderful having you here on the Zealous Advocate I've really podcast. I've really enjoyed it. I've really um, enjoyed it. Thank we've you. had a wonderful time having you here. Everyone, thank you for joining us. Follow us on Spotify. Hit the bell, and you'll get notified for the next time the Zealous Advocate podcast drops. Thanks for tuning in to the Zealous Advocate podcast. Make sure to subscribe to follow us wherever you get your podcasts.